Verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord, let us pray. Father, we uh, acknowledge that we need you. We're so thankful for the many past days in which you have fed us, sometimes in this church and and other previous experiences of other churches at different parts in the world throughout the nation as different men have stood up to proclaim your word faithfully. Those who've taught us in different classes, men and women in classes have taught us your word. We thank you for the ways you've invested in our lives. We thank you for your work in the world, and we again ask that you be with us today, that we might take for a few moments from our week and set our thoughts upon you to think about what your word says as it relates to us, events that you did in history and how they might uh, impact us today. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to see, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are receptive, that we might walk in the way of righteousness. We ask these things for your glory and for our good. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Perhaps you're familiar, as I am, with the words of this poem written by Ernest, William Ernest Henley during his battle with tuberculosis while he was in the hospital being treated. I first became acquainted with the words of this poem as I was required to learn it as part of my induction into a uh, social organization uh, that I once had to learn and know by memory, which I have since dismissed and moved away from because I disagree with the theology of it. But I think this poem captures something that is true about the human condition apart from God. Uh, we want to seek to rely upon ourselves for the course and direction of our lives and our futures. We want to secure our, secure our futures ourselves. An example of this, in the mid-1990s during the NBA playoffs, uh, there was a story that was 
put in a spokes, the spokesman review out of the northwest of the country that talked about something that had happened right before Game 7. They recorded that before Game 7. Uh, Kevin Johnson was playing on the team. They were playing against the Houston Rockets, uh, trying to finish out this NBA playoff, and uh, it was coming down to this last game. Uh, and before the, 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 the game started, Kevin Johnson led a, a few of the teammates in a chapel before this service. Uh, Charles Barkley was not present, and so afterwards, when he came in the room and, and, uh, and, and was in the, the empty room dealing with the chalkboard, he wrote this on the board for his teammates. He said, God only helps those who help themselves. And then he wrote with capital letters, we have to do it. And I think he summarizes the heart of what this poem moves at, that it is dependent upon us to work out our own futures. We must trust in ourselves, have confidence in ourselves to manipulate life to give us what we want. Now, sadly, in that NBA playoff, if you remember what happened in Game 7, uh, thankfully, the Houston Rockets won, and I was thankful about that. Um, but, they, but Phoenix lost 114 to 115. And though he said, hey, we have to do it, there was a reality that he was unable to do it. Because as humans, there are times that we have dreams and goals. We actually fail to actualize the future that we envision for ourselves. And yet to us, our culture repeatedly says, you do it. It's on you to get what you want on, out of life. Depend upon yourself. But life seems to say back to us, you're a human and you have limitations. I saw this as I read another article that told about uh, a scientist prediction. Back in 1995, there was an American scientist named Clifton Stoll, and he had predicted uh, what would be the outcome of the Internet because that was his field of, of interest. And he had predicted that the Internet would be a passing fad of the 90s. He even wrote an article for Newsweek called The Internet, Bah. Uh, then in an uh, interview with Minnesota Public Radio, this is what he said about the Internet back then. He said, I expect the value in the, in the Internet for communications is general isn't very high. I don't think people will, it will ever replace the face-to-face -face meetings or real rallies, things that get commitment and involvement from people. Rather, it induces a very shallow involvement, and as such, I think it is grossly overpromoted, and there's a great deal of hyperbole surrounding it. I think it's grossly oversold, and within two or three years, people will shrug and say, ah, oh, yeah, it was a fad back in the early 1990s, and now, oh, yeah, it still exists, but I've got a life to lead and work to do. I don't have time to waste online. Or... I'll collect my email, I'll read it, but why should I bother prowling around on the World Wide Web simply because there's so little value there? Ten years later, in 2006, when he was giving a TED Talk, he referred back to his previous predictions, and this is what he said. If you really want to know about the future, don't ask a technologist, <laughs> a scientist, a physicist. No, don't ask somebody who's writing code. No, if you, if you want to know what society is going to be like in 20 years, ask a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> See, that's one of the limitations that we find that we have as humans. We don't know the future. We just guess at it. And it's this reality that, to some degree, uh, casinos, uh, horse tracks, and lotteries operate based on that assumption that you don't know the future, and that's how they stay in business. And so if there's a reality that we as humans fail, how can we ultimately trust ourselves to secure the future that we think that we need through human effort? And so as a result of that, the Bible, in light of this reality, calls us 
to transfer that trust, that dependence from ourselves to God. Now, like many of us, Jacob wanted a certain future for himself, and that's whose life we've been looking at for the last several weeks. Perhaps he even expected it because of his mother's previous experience at her birth. Perhaps she had shared with him, hey, son, when he was younger, hey, this is what God said about you. And so Jacob then thought it was uh, up to him to take matters into his own hands when he became an adult and had watched his brother's life. Uh, He used deceptive practices, trickery, deceit. Uh, And so later his brother said to him, hey, listen, that's why they probably gave you the name Jacob. It rightly fits you. You're a heel grabber. You're a deceiver. And what do we remember that he did in his life? Well, Jacob was a self-reliant man. He was an opportunist. Uh, He he tricked his brother. um, Well, at least he, he took advantage of his brother when he was at a moment of weakness. Uh, he took an ill father and deceived him, of course, at the urgings of his mother and, and, and did that, trying to, to manipulate life so that it would give him what he wanted. Uh, and he was trying to, to force life to turn out the way that he wanted it to turn out. But we see what that really earned him. Uh, it did not give him the future that he was hoping for. Instead, what he ended up doing was running for his life. And as the, the text tells us in previous texts, he ends up with nothing, just simply the staff in his hand, the clothes on his back, and probably some food to make the long journey to his relative's home. Uh, he goes there seeking a wife, uh, and it's on that journey that God graciously chooses him, reveals himself to him, and makes promises to him, not because Jacob is worthy, but because God is gracious and kind. And we find out that Jacob's life works out well, or things work out in Jacob's life, not because of Jacob's manipulation, but because of God's care for him. He goes out and he finds that uh, he's not just the only deceiver in the world. He meets his match uh, in his uncle Laban, and he finds out that there's been someone who's been in the game a lot longer and can do it much better. And so he finds false prey to a master deceiver, and he gets tricked into an extra marriage and more years of labor. And God, though he's deceived and God allows him to learn a lesson from that, God uses those and turns them around for his benefit. The extra marriage produces an extra number of children. Uh, The extra years of labor produces for him an opportunity to win Laban's favor to end up into a business deal with his uncle. And when he does get into this business deal, the master deceiver does what he does. He seeks to deceive him, take advantage of him, and manipulate the deal so that he's always at the advantage. Uh, Jacob should have been at the the short end of the stick. It should have been to his detriment. He should have lost. He should have ended up with nothing. He should have ended up in more years of servitude. But God decided to intervene. And he turned what should have been to Jacob's detriment to his benefit. And even though Jacob tried to manipulate things through human effort, it was ultimately God was the one who made things work out for Jacob. And in order to break this pattern in Jacob's life, in order to to get him into a, a right direction of living, God had to bring him to an end of himself, often like what he has to to do with us. And so Pastor Mike preached about God's intentional direction in Jacob's life that put him in the proverbial rock, between a rock and a hard place. He directs him to leave Laban, but in leaving Laban, Laban chases him down to seek his harm, to take his life, and God steps in and protects Jacob. But just as he gets out of one situation, he gets into a much worse one as he realizes as he heads back home to his family, he's got to deal with what he left at the house environment when he went away, which was 
his brother still had anger and hostility toward him when he left. And the last thing he had communication with because there was no iPhone to do FaceTime with his brother over the 20 years. Uh, the last he had heard, his brother wanted to kill him. It's been 20 years, but maybe his brother hasn't cooled off. Maybe he holds onto a grudge. He doesn't know. And what does he do? He sends out emissaries, uh, his version of the post, uh, the mail service. And he says, hey, go out and check out my brother. Tell him you know, I'm coming home. We want to kind of prep him for me showing up there. Let's see what he says. And he, when the messengers come back, what do they say? Hey, your brother's coming. And he's got 400 guys with him. Not the kind of message you want to get, right? Uh, your brother's coming and he has an army. I'm not sure what he really intends to do here, but it doesn't sound good. And so that's the, the, the place that we find Jacob. He's in a place where God brings him to the end of himself. And it does not seem like on this occasion he's going to be able to maneuver his way out, although he does try to do some things to, to make restitution uh, to his brother, hoping to appease him. But it's in this text where we first see faith of Jacob start to materialize as he begins to pray and depend upon God. And God had, had, this is what God wanted to do, was to put him in this type of crucible to make him make a choice. Would Jacob continue to rely on his own efforts, or would he choose to depend upon God? And we see him at least starting to move in that direction as he prays. Uh, and it's in this prayer, in response to this prayer, that we find uh, one of the ways God mysteriously works in the world. And we find how God responds to this prayer on the very night that Jacob utters the prayer. God responds, but in a way that we might not expect, that we might not even feel comfortable with, but yet God does choose us to respond. And that's often how it is when God shows up, doesn't often turn out the way we think it's going to be. So let me return to the text and show you how God responds to Jacob's prayer. Verse 22 through verse 32. The same night he arose, being Jacob, and took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said to him, Jacob. And then he said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, this is an extremely difficult text to interpret. There are a lot of ambiguities in the text that we don't get uh, answers or resolve to at the current time just because of our knowledge of where we are in light of the ancient world. And so there are some difficulties in it. And so there will be questions that we will want to ask of the text that the text is not willing to answer because that was not what the writer's intent was, was to answer our modern questions that we might have. 
but there are things that we can pick up from the text. We do realize that in light of the narrative, uh, this uh, incident in Jacob's life is the major turning point in his relationship with God because God uses this situation, as I said, to bring him to an end of himself. So what we find in the text is that Jacob, uh, after his prayer, he's unable to fall asleep. And we can understand what that's like when you are dreading the fear of death. It produces anxiety in your life. And when you have high amounts of anxiety, sleep is hard to find. Uh, and so what does he do? Well, in the unstableness of his thinking, he makes an even riskier decision. The family that he's trying to protect, he puts them in danger actually by causing out without artificial light to cross a body of water in the night because he's so desperate in light of what's going on, the fear of having to face his brother. And what is, it was interesting is that at some point during the night, and we don't know how long this moving back and forth happens, uh, how long it takes to transition his family and all of his goods across the river, but whatever time it takes at some point during this process, he ends up alone. And something unexpected happens. He has to face an adversary. Now, we're not told how the match ensued, who, who began it, where did he come from, did he catch him off guard, who attacked too. All we know is that Jacob, once alone, is in the midst of a fight for his life as he's wrestling an unknown combatant. The man, as the text says, does not defeat Jacob. And when the man sees that Jacob refuses to be defeated, he makes a decisive move to change the nature of the battle. He touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it. Now, here in the text, there's an ambiguity. Here's one. We don't know necessarily the force at which he uses because the word has a range of meaning. In some texts, it's used to simply mean touch lightly. In other texts, it means to strike with force. And so we're not sure how the man does. I tend, because of the way the narrative plays out, to lean towards touch more on the softer side that the narrator is trying to get across something about the, case, the nature and character of the man that he's dealing with. And in light of that, I believe this is what gives Jacob his first hint that he's dealing with someone other than just an ordinary human man. Uh, it could have been that Jacob, the reason why he was wrestling so hard was because he thought that perhaps a scout from Esau had come out, that it went ahead of the riding the party to find him at a, at a vulnerable moment to try to, to take him out. And maybe that's why he was wrestling so hard. But it's this incident, I think, that leads him to a different conclusion because of the nature of what he does. In the battle where it seems that he may be winning this match, that he might get out on top, the man does something that lets him know that he has access to more power than he's letting on, that he might have just been playing with Jacob this whole time, like a parent does with his infant child or young toddler on the floor when they're wrestling. There's much more power available, but he's not been intending to hurt Jacob, at least up until this point. The second hint that this guy is not just someone who's ordinary is what happens when the dawn begins to break over the horizon. Uh, he says, he demands of Jacob, you need to let me go now, I have to leave. Uh, and so this may have been a second indication. There have been various interpretations throughout history. Some of the Jews, Jewish interpretations thought, hey, listen, maybe it was that he was an angel and he had to go back and sing in the morning choir. And so that was at dawn, so he would have had to leave. He had to get back to report to God. Others have thought other things. Some people have thought it's, it's just allegorical. This is just a, a, a type of talking about an inner wrestling with himself as he battles his past. 
There are those who, who, who've thought that in history. I don't think that's the case. I think this is a real physical confrontation. And we know that uh, God can take human form or at least send angels because of previous things that have happened uh, in Genesis. And so this is potentially what is happening and why Jacob uh, has some clues that there's someone, this is someone far more important than just a, a, a man attacking him uh, in the night. And we know that when Jacob sees an opportunity, he grabs it. And I think he realizes the opportunity that he has, and he goes for it. He becomes, despite the pain of having his hip dislocated in the match and the pain he's feeling in the moment, he will not let go of the man. Uh, he, releases, he, he refuses to release him. He says, the only way that I'm willing to let you go for you to get out of here is because if you will give me a blessing. And that's what he's been seeking his whole life the blessing of God, although he's been trying to get it through his own human effort. He's been trying to, to happen upon it through him forcing life to give him what he wants. What does the man do? He says, well, what is your name? I don't think the man here is asking that for the sake of knowledge in the sense of, hey, listen, who are you? You know, I've been wrestling with you the whole night, you know, uh, but I'm just trying to figure out who you are now. I was walking along, and there you were, and you just happened to attack me, or I attacked you because it was dark outside, you know. That's just how the ancient world works. No, I don't think that that's it. I, I think that the man was intentionally there to intentionally attack Jacob. I think there was an intention behind that, and in the light of that, he knew exactly who he was dealing with. But I think what he's really trying to get at is for Jacob to admit his name, and admitting his name, different than how we think about names, is to say something about his character and the life that he's lived. For him to face who he's really been all these years of his life. And that what his brother said about him really is true. He has lived his life as a deceiver. He's lived his life as a trickster. He's been one who has relied on himself to achieve what he wanted out of life. And thus that has caused him to do things in relationships that are not good. What is the blessing that the man gives him? He says, no longer will you be defined by your past, the person that you've been. Now you're going to be changed. You're going to be someone different, and thus I'm going to give you a new name. Now, it's hard here to know exactly what the name means, but in light of other usages of other names, probably best it is to lean towards either God fights or God prevails. And that's what the name means because ultimately this turning point in Jacob's life will move him from a person who's self-reliant to a person who's God-reliant. And that's ultimately what happens. And it's through this encounter that he has with God that ultimately leads him to have courage to face what potentially is a hostile brother coming toward him. Now, we know that this is probably God because the man himself hints at it when he says, you've wrestled with God and with man and have prevailed, hinting at his identity. Jacob seems to take that, and then he seems to say, yeah, I'm dealing with God here because of what he names the place after the man leaves. He names the place the face of God. And then he says, if I have been dealing with God all night, I've been wrestling with God, down in the dirt with God, it's only God's grace that has left me alive because when people have encounters with God and it's an unexpected encounter, when you run into God, that could end up real bad for you. And so the fact that he comes away with his life and only a limp after the battle 
he says, hey, I realize that God has had grace and spared my life. When Hosea reflects on this many years later, when he writes back and records this event, he says that Jacob wrestled with an angel. So most likely in light of those two facts, what we have here is potentially uh, moving towards the direction of this was probably the angel of the Lord. Now, there's more to talk about the angel of the Lord, but I won't get into that now. But, but, but a, a manifestation of God in reality. But, but that raises a question for me. Why would God come to down here and get, turn into human form in some kind of way and get down in the dirt with Jacob, throwing him around, body slamming him, elbowing him in the face? You know, why would God do all that? Who, who knows, you know? Uh, whatever is going on, why does God do that? The Gospel Project answers it this way and says, God was giving Jacob a vivid word picture of his life to that point in wrestling. Doesn't this describe Jacob's life perfectly? The swindler has been wrestling with other people his entire life, and more importantly, he's been wrestling with God. You see, each swindle was based on Jacob's lack of trust in the goodness of God. So wrestling was God's way of laying Jacob's life before his own eyes. Dr. Vaughan Porthris lays out the various elements when he writes. He says this, By prolonging the match, God tests Jacob's commitment. By touching his hip, he shows Jacob how ridiculous it is to think that a human being could flat out prevail against God. And yet God lets Jacob prevail, in a, in a sense, at a decisive point by giving him the blessing. The entire, entire encounter conveys a message of grace and an act of grace, undermining the willful attitude of Jacob's striving. And at the same time, by meeting Jacob on his own turf of striving, God graciously recognizes that amidst all the mixed motives Jacob has, that there is a real desire for God's blessing. And he establishes and affirms a relationship of blessing with Jacob. And at the same time, by disabling Jacob, he makes it clear that Jacob has not received the blessing by manipulating God. So then why the name change? Because God doesn't want Jacob to be defined by his deceptive, self-reliant strivings of his past. He has something new for Jacob, a new life to live. One writer put it this way, when God changes a name in the Bible, it indicates that something new has happened or will happen to that person, a new relationship, a new character quality, or a new phase of life. We see this somewhat in our own culture today when a wife takes the name of her husband. It represents a change in her life, both in the eyes of God and in the eyes of society. God's giving Jacob a new name means that there's something new happening in his life. To some degree, there does have some moral overtones, but mainly mostly dealing with the new future that Jacob has laid out based on God's plans for him and his new relationship with God. Now he will be known as the one for whom God fights, the one in whose life God prevails. And he would transition from being this person now who relied on human effort to being a man who relied on God and his promises. And he would no longer be just the, father, the God of his father Abraham and the God of his father Isaac. Now this God, who had been their God, would now be his God. We see that in the next chapter in Genesis 33:20, when he builds an altar, he says, it is the God of Israel. Now it's not just my father's God, it's my parents' God. This is my God as well. So how do we know if we're traveling down this path of self-reliance? How do we know if we're on that road like Jacob was before this encounter with God? 
Well, in contrasting and comparing Jacob's life, his previous life, the life before this encounter to his life after the encounter, not that he's perfect. He still has issues there that play out in his family, and we'll see those in days to come. But there are at least three things, I think, that are evident that give us hints to if we're on that path. One, from Jacob's life, there is a lack of prayer. We see that in a stark contrast in the before and the after. A lack of prayer com communicates to us that we're depending upon ourselves. We're not depending upon God. Idolatry in life. Remember Jacob before? He was more concerned about the blessing than he was the blessor. He was more concerned about getting the future that he wanted than serving the God who gives the blessing. It was a form of idolatry in his life. Another instance, pride. Pride. We see it in Jacob's life and how he dealt with Esau before and then how he deals with Esau after his encounter with God. Those are some of the warning lights. Think of them as warning lights on your dashboard. When these things are going off, that may be an indicator that you're on the path to self-reliance. In contrast, the text, this text reminds us here in Genesis that as people of faith, we must move away from attitudes of self-reliance to be people who are characterized by attitudes of dependence upon faith in God, that we must be people who depend regularly upon God. We see this in several aspects of our life, that, uh, of the Christian life that calls us from attitudes of self-reliance to dependence upon God. We see it in salvation. We are called away from depending upon ourselves to depending upon what God has accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection by faith that calls us to a new destiny that John 17 defines as eternal life. Paul put this in Romans chapter 4. He said this, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The scriptures call us in salvation in the gospel message when it's proclaimed to us, come away from relying on your work in a way to be right with God. Depend no more on what you've done. Depend on what Christ has done, what God has done through Christ. Rely solely upon that and forget all the things that you've done because that will not save you. In salvation, we're called to rely upon God even to be in a right relationship with God and for our futures to be changed. But it doesn't just stop at salvation. It goes on into Christian living in our day-to-day -day lives. We are called to not be people who are self-reliant, but to be people who are God-reliant. The writer of Hebrews writes to Christians, he says this to them, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. He says that we ought to keep our life free from the, from the love of money. What, what, what does money provide for us? The ability to be reliant upon self. But the believer is to keep his life free from the love of money, trying to manipulate life the way we want it to turn out to depending upon God and trusting him for our security. That looks like for me in varieties of life. Sometimes it looks like when I go home and I don't feel like helping in the house, I pray on my way home. And I say, Lord, when I get home, I don't want to help. <laughs> I want to go home and sit down on the couch. I want to drop my head back and snore a little bit. That's what I would like to do. But I know that you have called me as a believer to care about my wife and my children. 
and that would be a bad husband. So, Lord, I need you to strengthen me and give me a desire that I do not currently possess so that I might have the will to work because you have to work in me so that I might will and do those things that are pleasing to you. It looks like that sometimes. Sometimes it looks like asking God for help before a, a, a sermon. Sometimes it looks like at least an instance in my life, which I've shared before a number of years ago when I was uh, in seminary, there was a, a point in my life in which uh, I felt like I, I had a car at one point, uh, which was a BMW when I came to seminary, and, and I felt that, that the Lord was leading me to get rid of the BMW. Uh, and at that point in my life, my dad was helping me with the car, and what I ended up doing was I was afraid because my dad was helping me. Like, I didn't feel like I could get out of the situation because my dad would not let me want to get out of it. So I said to the Lord, if you really want me to, to get out of this situation, you need to work on my dad <laughs> so that he can be okay with me getting out of this car because we're in this deal together and he's not going to want me to, to get out of it. And so when I got home, what ended up happening, uh, that day, the day I drove up, my dad was pulling out with my brother-in-law and they left and they got their car where they were in an accident where the car was totaled. They were sitting at a red light and a guy ran into them and destroyed the car. And what was interesting, the police officer decided not to file charges against the boy and said, oh, he was young and he made some mistakes and, you know, and he was maybe forced into the lane by somebody else, so we're not going to give him a ticket. So my dad's insurance had to cover it. And it was those circumstances that allowed me to position a request to my dad and for him to be receptive. And so I said, why don't you take my car? And I get a new car, which was a Corolla. And my dad, because of the unique circumstances that had transpired, allowed me to be able to get that. But why did that happen? Because of dependence upon God. Not because I was in control of circumstances. God worked out those circumstances because this is his world and he rules it however he wants. And that is a life of the Christian to be dependent. But then even in life-threatening matters, we are called away from self-reliance to rely upon God. Jesus says, for whoever would seek to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. The Christian is called that in moments we don't go looking for them, but when they appear in our lives and put us in that position, we don't seek to shirk back from them, but we trust in the one who raises those believers from the dead, that our ultimate life rests with him. It's the very thing that Jesus had done. This other thing, the other thing that the text reminds us of is of a future promise that the Lord Jesus has made to those who will overcome. He said it in Revelation 2.17, this is what he said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, that stone that no one, the, on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The Gospel Project explains it this way. This is a promise not just to the Pergamum Christians, but, but please notice the amplification of what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. One day, God will give each of us a white stone. Some believe that this stone signifies the white stone that was handed down in the court of law to signify acquittal. And on that white stone will be a new name, a personal name, that is just between the recipient and God. God doesn't just own us. He doesn't just transform us. He loves us and he delights in having a personal relationship with us. Your name now might not matter much to you, but that, but that name on your white stone sure will. Because in that day, when you receive that white stone, if this is just metaphorical for what is God, when you receive your new name, it will accurately describe who you are and the future that you have with God. It will represent the full change of what has happened in your life as you stand in a resurrected body, transformed fully 
into the image of Christ. At the beginning of the message, I quoted a, a poem called Invictus. Uh, for those who don't know, it means conquer, which encourages us to rely on ourselves. But in the early 20th century, there was a lady by the name of Dorothy Day as a Christian who responded to Henley's manifesto, and she wrote a, a poem in response called Conquered. It was her version of saying, this is how the believer's attitude should be towards life, using his uh, wording as a method to convey it. And this is what she wrote. Out of the light that dazzles me bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since he, he is the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud under the rule which men call chance. My head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears that life with him and with his aid, despite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate he cleared punishment, the scroll. Christ is the master of the, my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Brothers and sisters, this is what the text calls us to. Christ must be the master of your faith. Christ must be the master of your soul. Rely not upon yourself, but put your trust firmly in the one who does control the future, God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the realities of this text. We thank you that we're reminded. We thank you, Lord, that there are moments in our lives where you will orchestrate them, you will direct them so that we are brought to an end of ourselves to see that though we have trusted in ourselves, we have put confidence in our abilities to manipulate the world around us, that there are things that even we cannot manipulate. Uh, our intellect won't save us. Our connections won't save us. Our income won't save us. Only you, who sovereignly rules this world, can control all things. And that we ought to depend upon you to give us the blessed life that Jacob was seeking. And that's what the promise we have in Jesus, eternal life, to know you and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And in knowing you, we will find the fulfillment of life as human beings. So we pray, Lord, whatever areas in our life now where we're self-reliant, would you point those out to us? Would you make us aware of them? And then would you help us to migrate over to where we're putting our full trust, dependence, and weight upon you alone? We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you stand with us and we'll sing our final song.